Welcome to Healthy Vision Talk Radio, the podcast for people in search of a physician with alternative solutions for their eye problems. From the best-selling, award-winning, world's-only homeopathic ophthalmologist, here's your host, Dr. Edward Kondrat. Uh, this is Dr. Edward Kondrat, and I'm so excited to have with me uh, Rachel uh, Gillibrand, who's actually on the phone from the University of Leeds in Yorkshire, England. So we're talking uh, across the big pond, as they say. And I found out about uh, Rachel uh, Gillibrand after I did the Camino Lapuy. The Camino Lapuy is a spiritual pilgrimage in France where you begin in Lapuy, which is in south central France, and you end at the um, San Juan uh, Pied de Paul which is on the border of Spain. And then most of the pilgrims will continue on to um, Compostelo, which is uh, near Portugal, Spain. Now, during my trip, and one of the reasons why I do these pilgrimages is I'm interested in learning more about miracles that have occurred, especially miracles where vision loss and blindness have been restored. And interestingly, on one day, we left Conk. We were at the Abbey of Sanfra at Conk, and we climbed up this amazingly steep hill. It was a one-mile hill, and one thing about the French, they do, do not like switchbacks. In America, all of our trails have these switchbacks, which make it easy to climb, but the French just go straight up. And this was in August, and I was exhausted, and I came upon this miraculous shrine, and it was a shrine uh, to... Um, uh, San Afra, who had, the legend has it, was responsible for many, many miracles in terms of curing blindness. So that's when I discovered Rachel uh, Gillibrand's work. I came across your article, Rachel, Sight and Sanctity, Curing Blindness in Healing Miracles. And I discovered that you're somewhat of an expert on uh, San, San Fa. And Sanfa means faith. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you became interested in this medieval time period of miracles and blindness and restoring vision. Yeah, absolutely. So what I do is I'm currently, um, as you say, based at the University of Leeds, um, and I work on disability in the Middle Ages more broadly. So thinking about um, bodily impairments and the function of the body and how people overcame uh, difficulties um, that we that we take for granted today. So I think about things like um, mobility in terms of um, missing limbs, in terms of um, going on pilgrimage, on how people walked, um, thinking about people who had so limited mobility that they would have to have um, proto-wheelchairs. And then as a part of that, I also consider blindness and how blindness affects people and the kind of choices that people made in terms of how they would achieve healing for their, for their blindness or limited sight in terms of surgery, um, miracles, and then um, technology as well, so, so the uh, invention of spectacles that occurred in this time period too. So I think about all those kind of different elements of healing um, in terms of uh, what people could achieve. Now, during some of my reading, I came across something interesting that healthy eyesight was considered very important aspect of developing spirituality that apparently in a lot of the early church traditions you had to visualize 
the sacraments going on. You had to visualize the altar. And without being able to see, wasn't it considered this a, a big detriment in order to achieve um, salvation? Absolutely, yeah. So this connects to um, medieval understandings of anatomy, um, in particular the anatomy of the eye. So um, the way they thought about it, it was built upon Galenic and Aristotelian theories. And they believed that the eye was this kind of both um, a passive and an active organ, I suppose you could sort of phrase it as, and that it emitted and received what they named visual spirits. Uh, so you couldn't see this with the naked eye, but it was kind of um, everywhere. Everything sort of emanated it. And you both sort of gave it out through your eyes and then took it in through your eyes. Um, and this visual spirit could be positive in its influence or it could be negative. So looking upon things like um, images of Christ, going to church, uh, as you say, watching the, watching the sacraments, that would be um, emitting good visual spirit. And so that would sort of increase your, your holiness and also your physical health as well. Um, it was important for your kind of biological health. Conversely, though, if you were looking at things that were um, negative um, or sort of reflecting on things that were sort of particularly sort of bold or um, inappropriate, then that could have a negative impact as well, and that would sort of um, make you bodily ill in that sense, just taking in that kind of uh, negative visual spirit. So I think that's completely fascinating in the way we think about um, what makes us healthy in this car and um idea of the eye being um, an orifice that had this kind of power over the body and on what's happening within the body. So yeah, it, it impacted on your sense of religiosity. Um, and in that way, blindness could be used as a punishment for people who are not or believed to be good sort of practicing Christians. Um, and uh, and they'll be punished through, through blindness um, as a way of not allowing them to receive this, this good visual spirit. So, in other words, if, if you did develop blindness, then it would limit you or it would make it impossible for you to achieve salvation? Well, that's where it gets a bit tricky and a bit interesting um, because it's really polarized. Um, there was definitely a belief that that would, that would be the case um, and that it would be more difficult to sort of, um, yeah, achieve salvation because you were missing out on these holy events that you would be reflecting on visually. Um, but equally, we've got these really wonderful case studies of people who thought that sight was uh, distracting and dangerous and could lead you astray. Um, and in this sense, it's the complete opposite that, that certain people were recommending blindness as a way of becoming more holy. So um, a nice example of this is in the um, Anchoring Vis, which was a kind of handbook written for uh, anchorites. And uh, that that book suggests that anchorites um, wear kind of dark fabrics across their eyes so that they don't kind of see negative things or that they're not led astray by visual temptations. Um, and they sort of connect that back to Adam and Eve and say that the problems with Eve all stem from her being able to see the apple in, in the first place and being distracted by the, the sight of that beautiful apple on the tree. So these um, religious anchorites were, were advised to uh, yeah cover their eyes with dark fabrics. And then the other major example of that that I'm sure you know about is um, St. Lucy. Yeah, St. Lucy, she's the patron saint of uh, blindness and visual loss. Sorry, I just missed that one. Uh, St. Lucy is the patron saint of uh, blindness and visual loss. And she had her eyes restored. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and she was, was believed to have pulled out her own eyes um, because of her piety. She, she was going to be um, married to a man who was not a good Christian, um, and she didn't want this, despite it being her family's wishes. So she blinded herself. She, she pulled out her own eyes so that she would be less beautiful um, and not deemed a good wife, and so that she wouldn't have to um, lose her virginity and marry this man who wasn't a good Christian. So in that sense, her blindness was a, a demonstration of um, holy disfigurement um, and making herself more pious through, through that action. But if the people of the Middle Ages would see all the visual distractions we have now, <laughs> they would be overwhelmed. I mean, in terms of if you want to be on a spiritual path in the present time, we have, oh my goodness, we have so many vices from pornography, violence on TV. Uh, every time you turn around, it's, uh, it's almost total chaos to the visual system. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But it's not so different from the Middle Ages. One of my favorite things um, about the, uh, the Middle Ages that I look at quite often in my research is um, marginalia in medieval books. So you've got these beautiful, pious books of ours uh, relating holy stories and, and psalms and um, biblical extracts. And then around the edges are these tiny drawings of everything you could think of. They're, um, they're violent, they've got warriors fighting, they've got pictures of people having sex, they've got uh, animals misbehaving. Um, and nobody quite knows exactly what these images are for. Um, or why they exist and why they're so sort of um, uh, polarized to the religious text that's in the center of these books. But I like to think that it's, uh, it's all connected to this idea of um, avoiding temptation and not allowing your, your vision to be drawn away from, from the center, from the good, the religious, to these often, yeah, exactly like you say, violent and, and pornographic um, doodles, images at the edges of the page. Um, and they're quite good fun to look at. They're, they're interesting in themselves. Well, one of the most moving things for me is to go into some of these old cathedrals in Europe and just the beautiful stained glass windows. It's so um, so moving to the visual senses to see the beautiful colors, and it's a, it's a spiritual experience in itself. Well, we're coming up to a break right now on Healthy Vision, and we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the life of uh, San Foy and her experience. Uh, interesting life and all the cases of blindness that uh, she was responsible for curing. We'll be right back after this break. Back um, uh, Healthy Vision and with me is uh, Rachel Gillibrand and I really appreciate her taking time from the University of Leeds to be on the show. And so I was fascinated with uh, San, Fr uh, San Fai, uh, who was an early Christian martyr uh, who was, uh, apparently she died at a very young age, at the age of 12. And she was responsible for so many miracles relating to restoration of blindness. And in fact, the article I read out of the 42 healing miracles, that 15 were specifically uh, related to blindness. So I wonder if you could share with us a little bit about her life and, and your research into this saint. Yeah, absolutely. So my research is um, concerned less with what she's up to during her life and more with what she's up to during her death. Um, but in terms of her life, not a lot is really sort of known about her as a person in terms of um, literary evidence. But we know that she was young when she um, was martyred. 
um, and we believe that her um, martyrdom took the form of her being tortured over a brazier um, and, and, and dying in that graphically horrible way. Um, but what I quite like about her and her miracles is that this sort of um, playful, childish element comes through that you don't always see with other saints. She can be quite sort of um, temperamental and um, vindictive at times. And it's, it's almost got a sense of um, childish sort of playfulness and, and humour to it, which I think is really wonderful um, and reflects the fact that she did die at, at such a young age. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, like you've um, mentioned, she has um, 42 miracles in her miracle collection. Um, and that collection was written by, um, well, first off, um, Bernard of Angus. Um, and after he died, it was it was continued by the uh, the monks of Conk. Um and it was those monks who stole her um, her holy relics and then took them to that to that abbey and then sort of positioned them there in that really beautiful um, reliquary, which you must have seen, presumably. Yeah, when I was in Conk, the abbey, I actually had the pleasure of uh, staying in the abbey. We had a room, my wife and I. Oh wow! We were doing the Camino Lepuy, and it was such a gorgeous abbey and it's funny because i didn't realize the significance of san foy at that time uh, i didn't realize that she was considered one of the top saints in terms of restoring blindness until i made that trek up the, the mountainous uh, hiking trail to the chapel in the spring of san foy uh, that's when i it all came together for me because it's been my mission, you know, as an eye surgeon, helping people that are going blind to looking at uh, the miracles that have existed. And, of course, I want all of my patients to have a miracle. They have their vision loss restored. So what a better way to find out about miracles and vision loss than to actually be there in the trenches <laughs> where the saints walked and where all these miracles took place. That's so lovely. That's such a, a lovely sense of kind of bringing together the past and the present, isn't it? And then also, um, it's really interesting that it's a tradition when you do the Camino Lapui that for pilgrims that can't make the journey, uh, they submit petitions and prayers. And before you leave the cathedral in, in Lapui, you gather up some petitions and prayers and you take them with you. You carry them with you during this 500-mile journey. And then you read these petitions and prayers. So what I did to my patient base, I sent out an email to all my patients if you had a petition and prayer for me to read on the journey. So I had uh, hundreds of petitions and prayers that my secretary typed up and I carried them with me on the Camino de Puy. So it was a really rewarding experience for me to um, make this pilgrimage and uh, feel part of the, the energy of miracles, the energy that you know, miracles, miracles do occur. And I guess the question I have for you is, um, you know, miracles were so prevalent during the Middle Ages. And is it something that we've lost because we don't believe in miracles now? Or do miracles still occur? Well, I think that, that things haven't changed as much as we, as we think they have. Um, so like I was saying in the first, section of your, of your radio show, um, people in the Middle Ages would use a whole array of, of different kinds of um, healthcare, and we sort of call it this, this medical marketplace. So they get this choice of, of how they want to kind of um, achieve their, their cures and their, and their sort of health provisions. 
And saints were a huge part of that. And that's because there were so many sort of pros that go with uh, visiting a saint. So it's largely inexpensive, provided that you can get there. Um, often saints would expect some kind of a, a donation or kind of recognition of a cure having worked, so you'd have to kind of um, make a promise and, and give something in return to that saint to kind of thank them. But compared to um, barber surgeons or other people who were offering healthcare, it was it was relatively cheap. People heard about these miracles because people were talking about them and, and sharing their successes, and these stories were kind of circulated within the communities. So people believed that it was working, um, and often knew people who knew people that had had something that had worked. So they were they were reliable. Um, so people were trusting them as a kind of um, center point of a, a cure that was affordable, achievable, and, and reliable, kind of the center of that, that Venn diagram, as would be. What I like that's quite interesting um, in, in France is that uh, St. Foy gets progressively less popular. Um, and I was thinking about this and thinking, why why does her popularity fade when other saints who are known for curing blindness, like um, Thomas Beckett in England, doesn't seem to face this same sense of um, degradation in his miracles. He, he does really well um, and continues having a lot of success. So I was like, what is going on that, that makes people less likely to go and visit this shrine and, and receive saintly cures? And there appears to be a correlation between um, eye hospitals being set up in France um, a kind of a few of them across across the country that were offering free um, healthcare to people with with eye problems amongst other kind of issues as well. Um, and hospitals in the Middle Ages aren't hospitals as we would recognise them today. They're more kind of like um, sort of like hotels. You you would be sort of fed and sort of taken care of, and it would mostly be sort of nuns or, or monks who were sort of um, volunteering their time to take care of you. So it wasn't a hospital in a kind of clinical sense that we would know it today. But they were still being offered this free healthcare. And what I think is quite interesting is that eye hospitals like this didn't exist in England um, at all. We never set them up here. So I think that's a nice correlation between why Beckett might have remained so popular um, as a kind of inexpensive option for, for healthcare, whereas Foy's popularity faded um, because there was this new um, sense of... Um, of these, these eye hospitals and what, and what they could do. So it, it cut out that necessity to travel to the shrine um, and the necessity to appease Foy with some kind of um, financial or object kind of um, to recognise that she'd cured them. And so in that sense, bringing it right back around to your question in a, in a really long-winded way, we have various different elements of, of healthcare now. We have so many different things available to us. And I think that's why we possibly don't look to miracles so much because of the other options that are available to us nowadays. So in, in England here, for example, we're really fortunate to have the NHS. Um, and that is almost the, uh, the sort of modern version of these eye hospitals. It's, it's free for us. It's around the corner. Um, it's dead easy to get to. And so for most people, seeing that kind of trusted, reliable um, hospital care that we have now um, makes more sense than checking across to, to France to, to get a miracle cure. So I think it's all to do with um, convenience, really, um, for, for individual people. Yeah, but I do think there's a, a large group of people that just don't have satisfaction with traditional eye care. 
And essentially, my practice is built on folks that have gone to the eye doctor and the eye doctor will tell them, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. You know, I can't help you. Surgery's not going to help you. Or maybe they had an operation and their eye problem has not been restored. So my practice is seeing people that are looking for an alternative that traditional ophthalmology has not helped them. So, you know, I do believe in miracles and I help educate patients on trying to understand their disease. I believe that all eye diseases have an emotional component that and you need to understand not only the emotional component, but maybe other underlying causes that need to be treated. And uh, of course, one of the modalities that is very big in England is homeopathy. I think homeopathy work, works very well for many eye problems. And I guess, as you know, homeopathy is an energetic medicine. Uh, it's a medicine that acts as a catalyst in the body, kind of to treat the underlying cause. So one of the things that was interesting when I visited the chapel of San Froy is that this idea of water, water being yeah. a vehicle of spirituality. And we come back, we're on another break. Let's talk about that, water being a vehicle to healing and curing blindness. So we'll be right back after this break. Okay, we're back and we're talking about San Froy and then we're also gonna focus on this idea of uh, water, water having healing properties. And of course, during my visits in France, my wife and I had several trips to Lourdes, which is an amazing place where literally thousands of miracles have been documented, blindness restored, um, you know, cripples uh, regaining their limbs, uh, miracle after miracle due to this magical property, this, the holiness of water. So what, what do you make of that? And to me, it ties in a little bit to homeopathy because homeopathy, we use water with the dilute substances that have an energetic property. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the, the closest I could, um, could think of in regards to this in, in the Middle Ages um, is going back to Thomas Beckett again. Um, this, this really is um, very similar to, to homeopathy in that um, he was martyred, he was um, murdered in, in Canterbury Cathedral um, over a kind of dispute between him and the, the king, uh, King Henry II. And after he'd been sort of brutally murdered in the, in the cathedral, um, it's said that the, the fellow monks, the people who were there, went up to the kind of pools of blood that surrounded him and mopped up this, this blood with, with coughs um, and sort of kept this blood. And then a little bit further down the line, what would happen is they would um, sort of squeeze out this blood and put a kind of tiny drop into bowls of water. Um, and so this, this kind of bowl of water was then infused with this holy martyr's blood. Um, and this mixture um, was used often to um, to cure blindness in people. It was um, doused on people's eyes. Um, people would uh, travel for, for miles to have access to this holy water. And they'd try and take it away with them if they could. Um, and they would uh, use it to, um, to cure blindness, which I think is fascinating in, in that sense. So do you think this is a placebo effect, kind of mind over matter? If you believe in something so strongly, uh, it'll convince your mind and body to make changes? Or do you think there's some actual 
physical property, energetic property of that person? Uh, see, I um, I subscribe to this um, this idea, this kind of methodology um, within medieval studies that um, that we shouldn't think about retrospective diagnosis, and we shouldn't think about necessarily why things were working. We should oh, that sounds that sounds wrong, but we should try and get into the mindset of the the people of the Middle Ages. So that's where I come from with my work. So I think all of them, this this really was. Um, Miraculous! It was a holy martyr's blood, um, and, and it was that kind of um, divinity that, that comes with that that cure. That is what's making it work for them. And so I think it's important not to try and um, take our own modern mindsets and push them back on the people of the Middle Ages too much, and think about what we know now and, and why that might have worked. But to rather think about how those people would have thought it worked and, and what was mattering to them and why they saw it as important. Because if you talk to most uh, modern scientists and physicians, they'll tell you that, well, the cases of blindness that were restored in the Middle Ages were hyster hysterical blindness, psychological, uh, that uh, they really didn't have any physical abnormality. It was mainly, you know, psychological. Uh, but I do think, you know, after my years of studying homeopathy, finding out the magical properties of homeopathic water, in terms of restoring illnesses and taking care of visual loss, that there's something more. There's something more to this. And I know that I felt uh, just wonderment when I was at the chapel of San Froy, uh, where the spring and the holy water. And, you know, part of me wanted to take as much water as I possibly could carry back to the United States. But then again, there was the practical aspect of trekking 500 miles, lugging all kind of water. <laughs> so I couldn't do it. So that's probably one of the reasons why so many people have traveled there, you know, to bathe in the yeah. water and to experience that. So can you share with us some other miracles that you have read that were related to San Foy? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my favorite one, um, and this is the opening miracle of her collection as well, so I think it's quite... Um, iconic in her, her miracles is um, the miracle of how Guibert got his eyes restored. Um, and I think it's wonderful. So um, Guibert was um, a, a common man in the Middle Ages. And after a dispute with his uncle, we don't know what it was over, but he went to a dispute with his uncle. Um, his uncle sent some men to attack him. And these men did, and they blinded him. Um, and so he, he lost his eyesight. He had his... Um, eyes cut out by these uh, by these men that his uncle had sent. So he lived for a long time um, with his blindness and suffered um, in the sense that he lost the sort of sense of who he was and he couldn't do the things that he could do before. And one night in a dream, um, St. Foy appears to him and she says that um, if you come to my shrine and you leave me a gift, uh, I'll restore your vision, but you've got to come to my shrine. So he does, eventually. He, he goes um, goes to Conk and goes to her shrine, um, makes a donation, and has his sight restored. Um, and so this sounds like it, it should be the end of the miracle, but I think this is where this miracle is um, particularly revealing, because it, it continues. Um, so he goes away, and suddenly he's got this kind of ability to see again, um, and so he uh, goes off the rails. Um, he stops being a good Christian, 
he um, sees prostitutes, he gambles, um, all because he's got this new ability to see um, that he's not had for so long. And as a result, St. Foy isn't happy about this, doesn't like the fact that she's uh, performed this miracle for him and he's wasting it on sex and uh, drink. And so she uh, blinds him again. She, she takes away his sight. Um, and of course, Gleaver is uh, unhappy about this and he promises again to her. He says, oh, St. Foy, I'll be a good Christian. I'll do everything you want me to do if you just give me my eyesight back. So she goes, okay then. And she does. And once again, he falls into this uh, downward spiral of uh, bad behaviour and immoral behaviour and he's blinded again. And this circuit goes on for, for the rest of his life. Um, his blindness always uh, is, is sort of um, inflicted upon him by St. Foy when he starts to become a bad Christian. And in that sense, she tries to sort of um, control and improve his spiri- uh, spirituality through this, um, this, this blindness and inflicting blindness upon him. So I do particularly like that one. I think it's um, it's a really nice way of thinking about um, how people saw miracles, the sort of the perils of taking a miracle for granted as well, um, and the power that saints had as well. Not just in terms of a miracle once, the fact that once they had intervened in your life, they were, they were very much a, a part of it and could um, take away as much as they could uh, as they could give to you, which I think is is nice thinking about what that meant to people in the Middle Ages. Yeah, so in other words, a miracle is, is a gift. Yes. And if you don't appreciate that gift or use that gift properly in your life, then you really don't uh, deserve it. And I think you see this all the time when people's lives are changed. Let's say they have terminal cancer or some disease where they're supposed to die and then a miracle occurs. You know, typically that person is changed profoundly. They look at life differently. You know, we take all of our senses for granted, you know, sight, hearing, and when we lose a sense, then we really appreciate how limited our life is, uh, that for some reason, if it's regained, then we live our life differently. So I think these are very powerful lessons that Christianity was trying to teach people and the saints were trying to teach people. Yeah, absolutely. And nice um, study by um, a scholar called Koopman. Um, and she thinks about blindness miracles as well. Um, this sort of connects back to what we were saying. She thinks that the reason we, we still have so much evidence for blindness miracles and the reason that they were recorded is because they were so dramatic. They were life-changing for, for so many people. Um, and the fact that they're um, memorable in this way um, means that people were telling these stories and sharing these stories and people going to the shrines. So I think that the kind of... Um, the grandeur of um, restored sight is uh, is why these miracles were, were so popular and were recorded because it was unlike anything people would sort of know. Uh, well, we're coming up to another break, and uh, when we come back, let's talk a little bit more about uh, miracles, uh, restoring blindness, and all these interesting activities that were going on in the Middle Ages. We'll be right back after this break. Okay, we're back with uh, Rachel Gillibrand, and uh, we're going to talk now about the invention of glasses, uh, which I find very interesting, uh, because as an eye doctor, glasses are so important, and it's hard for me to believe that there was a period of time when glasses did not exist. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that we just um, 
take for granted. They're, they're everywhere. Um, there's not many people who don't own a pair of sunglasses, be it for, for sight or sunglasses or, or that kind of thing. Um, and, um, yeah, I think we uh, we don't think enough about where they came from and what life would be like before them. Um, in terms of their history, um, the use of, of glass itself to improve vision is suspected to have been used way before the, um, the Middle Ages. Um, the earliest uh, material example we have of what we think might be um, a kind of... Um, like a very early magnifying glass was found in 750 BC, um, and that's known as the, the Nimrod lens. Um, but the kind of spectacles that we would um, recognise and kind of um, know today came into uh, came into being most sort of prominently in the, in the 13th century. These glasses were um, largely luxury items. Um, they were expensive um, when they were initially created, um, and they were made largely for the rich um, and as a result they kind of became associated with um, wisdom and knowledge which I think is quite nice because there's, there's still this idea um, nowadays that, that people who wear glasses are clever and that kind of um, the sense of where that came from this idea of glasses being a, a luxury object um, I think that's quite quite interesting to think about and it's because people who were using these like I say were not only just rich but they were there were people who needed them so there were people who would um, write often kind of um, monks, illuminators, um, members of the nobility, um, or craftspeople, talented people who had kind of close-up, small work to do who, who would need these items. So early on, uh, glasses were mainly magnifiers, I guess, for close work. As people got older, they needed magnifiers to read. Is that correct? Absolutely, yeah. So initially... Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not an optician. Um, but um, the glasses were um, convex. The, the, the glass itself was convex, um, and they were um, intended for um, presbyopes. Um, and it remained that way for um, a couple of hundred years, uh, where, where it was used for close-up work, so almost like a, like a magnifier. And it was only by the mid-15th century that the invention of um, concave lenses um, were beginning to be produced. And so we saw um, this alternate function um, for being able to see distance as well as, as close-up work. And that came around towards the end of the, the Middle Ages, in the, in the 15th century. But it's interesting, your comment that typically glasses were only available to the wealthy or the nobility, and uh, that the, the commoners, uh, the peasants, uh, really didn't have access to glasses, correct? Absolutely, definitely at the um, the beginning of the production of glasses. Um, but this changed quite rapidly. Although when I say quite rapidly in, in historical terms, I mean maybe over the course of about 100 years. Um, so initially, um, glasses were being produced in, in Italy, um, especially in, in Florence. Florence was a, a big hub for uh, the production of, of spectacles. But as they kind of um, were being circulated outside of Italy and they were sort of being heard about across Europe, um, France and Germany got involved and they also became big producers of, of spectacles. Um, and then we see this phenomenon um, in the kind of 14th century and 15th century of the people who are called spectacle peddlers. And these would be um, merchants who would buy glasses in, in bulk, um, lots of them, 
and then travel from city to city and town to town um, and, and selling their goods relatively cheaply. And from this, we start to see um, glasses being made out of more affordable materials. So thinking about what they look like, um, which I, I think is important, I probably should have mentioned this before, they had no arms um, that would go over your ears. So you would sort of hold them up to your face. Um, and they're known as rivet spectacles. So you'd have two eyeglasses, one for each eye, which were joined with a, a rivet over the kind of nose. So nobody really knows, but it, it seems like it would be very difficult to balance them on your face without any kind of support. So we think that um, it was intended that you were holding them to your face um, with your hands. Or possibly, um, or possibly it could be like a monocle, that the monocle is kind of wedged in your eye socket, and by squinting and squeezing, you hold the monocle in place. Yeah, that would make sense. You'd have to be doing that with both eyes, but that would that would make sense, yeah. Um, and the frames of these were, were um, initially made out of more expensive materials, kind of um, bone or, or high-quality wood, that kind of thing. Um, but as, as time progresses and, and glasses become more, more affordable um, and then they're sold in, in more kind of uh, towns and cities across Europe, they're being made out of um, cheaper woods and, and leather rather than uh, rather than this kind of expensive bone that they'd be, be made of previously. So they do eventually become much more affordable as, uh, as time progresses. And of course now glasses uh, are a miracle. They're giving so many people who have visual problems a much better vision and a much better quality of life. And it's interesting, uh, I, I do a lot of missionary work and one of the most gratifying things that I do during my missionary work is giving people glasses that they need to help improve their vision. You don't need to do complex surgery or take care of uh, you know, severe eye diseases, just a simple pair of eyeglasses that can help them uh, bring clarity to their vision and see the smile on their face. It just changes their whole life and changes the world. So, you know, glasses are truly remarkable. And for medieval people as well, if your um, entire livelihood depends upon your ability to craft or sew or do close-up work, um, the, the production of these kind of goods that required... Um, detailed, intricate work, losing your sight would be the loss of your livelihood as well. So in fact, as you say, being able to have this um, new technological device that is glasses would be miraculous because it would enable you to continue making money and continue practicing your craft. So uh, I, wanted, I wanted to close by maybe if you could share with us some of the work you're doing. Uh, you're currently working uh, on your PhD, is that correct? It is, yeah. I'm three years into my PhD now, so getting towards the end of it. It's a lot of hard work. Uh, so maybe you could share with us your thesis? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my thesis is um, focusing on um, mobility in the late Middle Ages, so from uh, 1450 to 1550, so right at the end of that period. And I'm thinking about what people use to overcome um, difficulties with physical mobility. Um, so I'm looking at um, the use of medieval crutches, the evolution of wheelchairs as a technology, um, the function of the community and animals as ways to overcome um, mobility issues, so, so being carried, riding on horses, 
um, guide dogs, which I think is quite nice and ties into blindness. Um, not many people think of guide dogs being used in the Middle Ages, but they were. Um, and then thinking about prosthetic technologies as well. So this kind of early advances in, um, in the use of, of prostheses for people with, with missing limbs. I'm kind of smiling. You're telling me this. When I was doing the Camino, my wife and I were walking up a hill and there was an elderly lady with a walker and she was struggling, moving her body forward. And I said hi to her and I found out that she had uh, her total... Gosh, wow. And I said to her, did your doctor give you permission? And she looked at me and said, of course not. If I would have asked <laughs> him, he would have said no. But this is something I wanted to do, the Camino, you know. Uh, Le Puy, and here she was walking. Uh -huh. So that's a good example of overcoming a motility problem. <laughs> incredible. Uh, another what I look at is um, the mobility aids that people used on pilgrimage. Um, so people who were able-bodied um, but still needed kind of um, trekking poles or walking sticks to, to get by. Um, alongside those people who were going on pilgrimage because they had uh, health complaints, and so they they needed more assistance. So I think um, thinking about people going those long distances, as you've done yourself, and how they they did that with various impairments is fascinating. Hmm. But it's kind of you know it's very spiritual, uplifting. And when you think about walking a hundred or five hundred miles, can be overwhelming. But you know you do a little bit each day, and you meet wonderful people, and it's really a a joyous experience. A joyous experience and that's something Rachel you need to do you need to do one of the uh, uh, Caminos maybe the Camino de Santiago the Camino de Puy. Uh, let me know if you need some advice on how to get started so. oh fantastic yeah Santiago is uh, is done by a lot of the people that I study so it'd be quite mm -hmm. nice to walk in their footsteps mm -hmm. well I want to thank you so much for uh, joining me on Healthy Vision and best of luck to you on your PhD thesis. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. It's been lovely to chat with you. We hope you enjoyed today's broadcast. If you'd like to learn more about alternative eye treatments, access free reports, or subscribe to Dr. Kondrat's newsletter, visit us at healingtheeye.com. If you enjoyed today's show, please write a review. We love hearing from listeners. To hear more episodes about alternative eye treatments, click subscribe and download all of our previous shows. We wish you good health and clear vision.